you have a Bible with you this morning, open it with me to Isaiah chapter 7. Isaiah chapter 7. And in a few moments, we'll give our attention to the first 17 verses of that chapter. While you're finding your place there in Isaiah 7, just a quick reminder uh, that our Christmas cantata with the combined choirs and PSBC orchestra will be taking place uh, two times this upcoming weekend. The first will be on Saturday at 6 p.m. here in the sanctuary. And I uh, hope you'll make plans to join us for that. Invite family and friends to come and to be with us as well. And then we'll also have it next Sunday morning in our 1045 service. And since it'll be the Cantata uh, Sunday next Sunday, we won't have early service at uh, 8.30. Small groups will still meet at 9.45, but then the Cantata, uh, the the next showing or next presentation uh, will be at 10.45 a.m. next Sunday morning. And to kind of help you get that word out, again, we've got these invite cards. One side is the block party. The other side is the Christmas cantata, uh, sharing that information. So grab some of those as you leave today. Share those uh, with family and friends and throughout the community this week. And let's be in prayer uh, that the Lord will do a great work uh, through these ministry uh, opportunities that we have. Uh, As we gather for the cantata, it's not just a wonderful time of of worship. It is that. It's not just a wonderful time of remembering what Christmas is about. It is that. Uh, But it's also an opportunity for us to reach out and to invite those who don't know Christ or know the true meaning of Christmas to come, to hear, to learn, and hopefully to believe in Jesus as well. The theme of the cantata this year is Hope Has a Name. And many of the songs that you'll hear, much of uh, what will be shared, will deal with the name of our Savior, the names that have been given to Him. And certainly that's a big part of the Christmas story. Uh, The names of Christ are a wonderful part of the Christmas season. We heard that this morning in the lighting of the first Advent candle in Isaiah 9. Uh, There the prophet said that his name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Almighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And of course, when the angel came to Mary to share uh, what God was doing and uh, working through her, that the Holy Spirit would conceive a child in her womb, the angel said, you shall call his name Jesus For he will save his people from their sins. And so as we consider the names that have been given to our Savior, the names of God, uh, it's worth our consideration because the Bible says in Psalm 910, those who know your name put their trust in you. As we consider the names of God, we're considering how he has revealed himself to us, that we may revere him, receive him, and then reflect him to those around us. So don't miss the cantata this upcoming weekend, and again, invite others to join with you as well. And so this morning, as we come to the Christmas season, we're going to come to a Christmas sermon series. And uh, I thought it would do uh, well for us to take one particular name uh, and focus in on that. And so over the next couple of Sundays, as we gather for uh, worship and service, and as we gather in the Christmas season, I don't want us to just think about the name Emmanuel. God with us. God with us. And when we first hear the name Emmanuel, when we first think of the name, uh, we rightfully go to the Christmas story. We go to where the angel would speak to Joseph and uh, remind him that uh, what God is doing in his uh, betrothed, soon-to-be wife, Mary, was a work of the Holy Spirit, and that that child will be named Emmanuel, God with us. But the very first time that we find the mention of Emmanuel... Uh, is not in Matthew, uh, but rather it's in the book of Isaiah. And that's where I want us to look this morning. Isaiah chapter 7, these first 17 verses, 
they present to us, if you will, an ancient Christmas. What we're going to read here takes place 700 years before the birth of Christ, before he is born there in Bethlehem, before the shepherds come upon the scene and the wise men present their gifts. Christmas is spoken of with the name Emmanuel and this prophecy of Isaiah. And in our text today, what we will discover is that Isaiah 7 calls us to affirm faith. Affirm faith. In fact, Isaiah 7 really is more about faith and where our faith lies than it is the prophecy that is given. The prophecy is simply shared to help point out the lack of faith in the heart of a particular king. And so if you have your Bibles open, I want us to hear God's word and then share just a few thoughts with you this morning. Isaiah chapter 7, beginning with verse 1. Hear the word of God. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you, and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria, with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah, has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabiel as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. If you mark in your Bible or um, make emphases in your Bible, you may want to underline those last two lines of verse 9. That's the crux of Isaiah chapter 7. Be firm in faith. And where we place our faith has eternal consequences. Verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David. Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day 
that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. Would you pray with me once more? Lord, we thank you for this, your holy word. And we pray now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of it. Father, I pray that by your word, your spirit would work mightily within our hearts and our lives today. Father, as your word goes out, may we examine where our faith lies. And Father, we pray that by your word, our faith would grow firm. Lord, we pray that in all things, your name would be exalted. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, a heart that would be soft to believe. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, this morning, as we think about Isaiah 7, as we think about Emmanuel and a firm faith, there's just two simple parts to the text. Two simple parts, and then hopefully we'll leave you with the point. So the first part is the first nine verses of chapter 7. And in these verses, we find the predicament. The predicament. In the first nine verses of Isaiah 7, we're given the scenario that is unfolding in the region of Palestine. The geopolitical events that are shaping the day. So to understand what's taking place, we need to do a little bit of history in the Old Testament. Isaiah 7 opens by telling us that in the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah. Ahaz is the king of Judah. And if you're not familiar with Judah, it came about because there was a separation, a split, among the tribes of Israel. If you remember, Saul was the first king over Israel. Then you had David, uh, the son of Jesse. And then following David was his son Solomon. And following the reign of Solomon, because of his disobedience before God, his son did not rule over a united kingdom. He did not rule over all of Israel. After the death of Solomon, the nation of Israel was split. There were ten northern tribes that constituted the kingdom of Israel. And so many times in the Old Testament, especially in the prophets, when you read about Israel, it's referring to that northern group of tribes. And then separating from them, you had two tribes, Judah and Benjamin, which became known as the kingdom of Judah. The separation took place based upon who they thought should be the new king over Israel. The southern tribes believed that it was Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, who should rule. And so that separated them from the ten northern tribes and the king that they placed over them. Well, history continues to unfold, and now we have Ahaz as king over Judah. This is approximately 700 years before Christ is born. And if you're not familiar with Ahaz, let me just say this, he's not a good king. He is not following the ways of God. He's not going uh, in the ways of his grandfather Uzziah, who ruled uh, mostly well during his time. Uh, in, in fact, Ahaz is pretty much godless and faithless during his reign. And we're told here in the beginning of Isaiah 7 that Ahaz is now trembling. He's concerned over his rule. He's concerned over his kingdom because an alliance has been formed that is seeking to come against him. And that alliance is comprised of Rezin, who we read about in verse 1, who is king of Syria, and Pekah, who is the king of Israel, the king of the ten northern tribes. Uh, so the king of Israel is coming together in coalition with the king of Syria, and they are wanting to come against Judah. 
Now, why are they wanting to come against Judah? Well, they're wanting to come against Judah so that they can overthrow it and to put in the place of Ahaz, a puppet king, uh, the son of Tabiel. We read that in verse 6. And they want to do that so that they can gain any might or military prowess uh, that Judah might provide them. You see, there's also something else taking place on the stage at this time. In the region of Israel, in the land of Palestine, you mostly had small little kingdoms, small little states. You had Syria, you had uh, Israel, you had Judah, you had Aram, you had uh, Philistia, the Philistines, you had Edom, you had all of these small little states, these small little kingdoms. But then on a larger scale, the big fish in the pond was the Assyrian Empire. This was the big fish in the small pond, and the Assyrian Empire was led by a a man named Tiglath-Pileser III, a very ruthless leader. He was an expansionist in his philosophy of ruling, meaning he wanted to take over all the land that he could, and he particularly had his eye on the land of Egypt. Egypt was the breadbasket of the world in those days. So if you could get Egypt, you could control a lot of trade, a lot of commerce, you could have a lot of supply. But in order to get to Egypt, he had to go through the region of Palestine, which comprised all of these small little kingdoms, including Israel and Judah. And so he has his eyes set on them. And so Israel and Syria come together in a coalition They want to overthrow Judah so that they can perhaps form a stronger stand against Assyria. And so this word gets out, it reaches Ahaz, and he is scared to death. He knows that he can't stand against this coalition of Syria and the northern tribes of Israel. They've come together in league, and Judah is in their crosshairs. And we're told in verse 2 that the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people of Judah shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Their desolation is right before their eyes. They know they will fall. They know they can't last long. And it's in light of this that in verse 3, the Lord speaks to his prophet Isaiah and says to him, Go out and meet Ahaz, you and Shear Joshub, your son, and go at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. Now, we're given this bit of information to kind of give us an understanding of just how bad things are. Ahaz is the king, and Isaiah is told to go and meet him uh, at an upper pool where an aqueduct and conduit has been built to supply water to the city of Jerusalem, the land uh, of Judah. And presumably, Ahaz is there in an effort to, to kind of stockpile water to get a supply because he knows they're about to be besieged, perhaps cut off, and so he needs to get as much supply as he can storehouse to hopefully last longer than what they think they might be able to. And so Isaiah is sent there by the Lord to go to confront Ahaz during this occasion. And interestingly enough, he takes his son with him, a son that was given a name by the Lord. What a wonderful name it is. If you're here today and maybe you've got grandkids coming soon and you know one of them is going to be a little boy, you might just suggest to your, your children, have you thought about the name Sheer Joshub? just has a good ring to it, doesn't it? You'll probably be disappointed. I don't think you'll find any keychains or pocket knives with that name engraved on it in Gatlinburg when you go this winter. Uh, but it is a good biblical name if you're looking for one. But that name has a meaning. 
The Lord gave it for a purpose, and for a purpose he has this son with this unique name go with his father, the prophet Isaiah, to confront Ahaz. The name literally means of the son, a remnant shall return. Now that's an interesting name and an interesting meaning. In one sense, it conveys an idea of concern. Because for there to be a remnant, there's got to be a taking away. There's got to be something that's going to happen that will form a remnant to be named. But it also conveys not only an idea of concern, but an idea of hope as well, because a remnant will remain. So the Lord has this son of Isaiah with this unique name go with his father to stand before Ahaz because he is a walking witness to the Lord's plans. God will not forget his people. So they go and they find Ahaz up there stockpiling water. And in verse 4, Isaiah says to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Don't let your heart grow faint. Don't worry about the two smoldering stumps of firebrands, resin and pica. Let me just give it to you in Paulton County vernacular this morning. The Lord says, don't worry about those knuckleheads. They're two smoldering fire stumps. These two guys are nothing. Don't worry about what their plans are. Don't worry about what they're going to do. Don't worry about the evil that they have uh, come to you with. They're going to try to come up and conquer you, to terrify you, to put a king in your place. But in verse 7, the Lord said through Isaiah to Ahaz, It shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. What a good word. That's the word of the Lord. And when the Lord determines something's not going to happen, that it's not going to come to pass, that the plans of man will not fail, you can mark it down. It's not going to happen. That should have been all the word that Ahaz needed. Isaiah continues to speak, and he recounts uh, the, the battle that's at hand, the ensuing armies that are looming. But he says in verse 8, 65 years in Ephraim, the northern tribes, Israel, They'll be shattered from being a people. Just a matter of time, and these two enemies, the Lord will deal with. But then at the end of verse 9, he adds these two lines, If you, you Ahaz, are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So in light of this great conflict, in light of this crisis that has arisen in the, the, the history of Judah, and particularly in the life of Ahaz, Isaiah the prophet comes to him and really lets him know the Lord wants you to realize that this is an issue of faith. Where does your trust lie? What is your heart holding on to? Where is your hope to be found? And Ahaz, if you're not firm in faith, you're not going to be firm at all. This is the Lord saying, if you don't have faith, you're not going to make it through the fights. Isaiah 7 deals with the issue of a firm faith. And many times it's in the season of crisis, of turmoil, when our world is getting turned upside down, where the Lord really begins to reveal where our faith ultimately lies. It's in those hard seasons and difficult moments where we begin to understand what it is that we're holding on to and what it is that we're trusting in. And what we discover in the remainder of our text is that Ahaz 
didn't have trust, didn't have faith in God. So chapter 7 begins with a predicament. You understand the scene, you understand the stage, you have an idea of what's going on. Well, in the remainder of our text, we can think about the prophecy. It's in light of this particular circumstance, the predicament facing Judah and Ahaz, that the Lord issues a prophecy. Look in verse 10. Now, as we come to the second half of the text, it's important that we keep in mind who is speaking and who they are speaking to, who is being addressed. In verse 10, we're told very clearly, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Presumably speaking through the prophet Isaiah, he gives his prophet a word, the prophet shares it with Ahaz, and here's what the Lord said. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. The Lord is saying to Ahaz, I'm giving you a blank check, buddy. You can ask me anything that you want. Anything uh, between heaven and earth, anything you want me to do, and I will do it to show you that my word is true. That this enemy will not stand. That you can have faith in me. He's offering this to Ahaz so that he may have great confidence in this great God. So the Lord has spoken to Ahaz directly. Then in verse 12, we have Ahaz's response. But... Now, that right there should let us know that something's going to go a little bit awry. It doesn't begin, Ahaz said, rather it's but Ahaz said. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. Now, we hear that, and if we just read it casually and, and maybe even carelessly, we can look at it and they go, man, this Ahaz guy, he's a, he, he's a pretty righteous dude. We know we shouldn't put the Lord to the test. I mean, doesn't the Bible say that in Deuteronomy? You shall not test the Lord your God. We, we shouldn't be going about you know, doing things like that with the Lord. And it sounds like, man, that's what Ahaz is doing here. He's this very pious, very sound, very religious dude. He's wanting to honor the Lord. And, and God, I'm not going to do that to you. I'm not going to ask you to do that. Not you. I'm not testing you, Lord. But here's what you would forget. In verse 10, when the Lord spoke to Ahaz, he was commanding him to ask for a sign. The Lord said, you ask for a sign. Anything from the dirt to the heavens. Whatever it is, you ask and I will do it. That's the command of God. And now in the very next verse, Ahaz is saying, I ain't doing that. I'm not going to follow your command. I'm not going to do what you're asking me to do. And it's in this moment that we really get a glimpse of what's going on inside Ahaz's heart. That he is not a very righteous king. That he is not a very godly king. That he is not a very faithful king. In fact, it's all the opposite. He is godless and he is faithless. And we know that because he is unwilling to follow the instruction of the Lord. It's amazing to me how many people want to say that they've got faith. Oh, I've got faith, oh, I believe, but yet when the Lord says this is what you should do, they're like, nope, ain't doing that. That's what Ahaz is doing here. The Lord commanded, the Lord asked, the Lord said, I'm going to give you a sign, and Ahaz says, oh, no, you're not. And then in verse 13, the Lord is speaking again, 
and presumably through his prophet Isaiah. And he said, hear then, O house of David. Now don't miss this. Because previously the conversation had been addressed directly to Ahaz. Ahaz, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Ahaz, you ask for a sign. And Ahaz says, I ain't doing it. I'm not asking for a sign. And then in verse 13, the Lord speaks again through Isaiah, and the audience addressed changes. It is now, hear then, O house of David. There's a broadening out here. And when this terminology is used, house of David, it brings to the surface an underlying concern in the history of what's taking place in Isaiah 7. David was the second king of Israel. And the Lord promised David, gave him that, that covenant promise that there will be one from your lineage who will rule and reign on your throne forever. And now here we are in Isaiah 7, and presumably the house of David is going to be wiped out. The kingdom of Judah is going to be done away with. What is to happen? What is to come of this promise? So now the Lord is speaking to his people. Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you would weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You hear the word you there? That's not to Ahaz. When the prophet said and the Lord said, he will give you a sign, he spoke it in the plural. He is not speaking to Ahaz any longer. Ahaz has made his choice. He has declared his decision. He has revealed his faithless heart in God. And so now, now the Lord is saying, I'm speaking to you, the people of Judah, to you, my people, you will be given a sign. And here it is. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. we think about this prophecy of this sign that will be given, there's a couple of things that we need to touch on briefly. We don't have time to get into the weeds of it all. But we need to ask the question, this sign, this child that will be born, is this a child in Ahaz's day? Or is this the ultimate child to come, the Messiah? Well, I think the answer to that question, or both of those questions, is yes. Many Bible commentators believe that as Isaiah is speaking here, he's speaking not only of the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy, but of its immediate fulfillment through a child, a child that would be born. There perhaps in Judah, in the courts of the, uh, the king, a child that would be reared and raised, and before it gets to a certain point in age, uh, the kingdoms of, of uh, Syria and, and that of Pekah, they will be overthrown and desolated. So it's kind of a time clock that God is given here. So in a sense, there's a double meaning here. And that's the way a lot of prophecy in the Old Testament plays out. It's a lot like looking at a mountain range. When, when you look at a mountain range, you, you, you can see the layers of it. You can see the mountains that are near, and then you can see the mountains that are far away. And many times, the, the near mountains are the smaller mountains, and the far away ones uh, are the greater ones. And that's the same way prophecy works many times in the Old Testament. There's a little p prophecy, and then there's a capital P. And that's the case here. There's a child that would be born, a time clock for the events that are unfolding here in Isaiah 7. 
But there's also a greater child and a greater time clock and a greater meaning that will be fulfilled. And that, of course, comes when Christ came into this world, when Christ was incarnated and took upon himself flesh, and God dwelt with us. So there's a near and a far aspect. Then we need to, we need to think about the word virgin there. There's been more ink spilt and used in writing about this and debates over this. As it's used here in Isaiah, does it mean that the child that would be born in Ahaz's day will come from a virgin? I don't think that's the case. The Hebrew word that is used here uh, speaks of, a, a presumably, uh, an unmarried young lady, but it does not necessarily emphasize uh, her virginity or her purity. So it's speaking of this lady who will bring this child to be born, to be assigned for this particular occasion and this particular occurrence. But we do know and we do understand that the ultimate fulfillment of it does include a virgin. Her name was Mary. And we know this very clearly because an angel of the Lord makes that connection for us in Matthew chapter 1. As the angel appears to Joseph, and explains all the events that have unfolded in his life in those days. The angel says, this has all taken place so that what was spoken by the prophets may be fulfilled. So yes, it speaks to us of a coming child who would be born of a virgin. And then we need to think about what does it mean? What is the meaning of this child and his name being Emmanuel, which means God with us? Well, I think here in Isaiah 7, the Lord is teaching his people, and he is certainly reminding Ahaz of where trust should ultimately lie, of where hope is truly found. You see, one of the reasons Ahaz responded as he did to the Lord's instruction to ask for a sign is that Ahaz had no trust or no hope in God at all. Instead, he had kind of gotten in on how things were going in his day. He realized that there had been a coalition formed against him, so he said, you know what? I'm going to form me a coalition. And what we read in 2 Kings 16 is that Ahaz formed an alliance, not with uh, the northern tribes of Israel, not with Syria, not with Edom, not with the Philistines, but he went to the big bad wolf himself. And Ahaz formed an alliance with Tiglath-Pileser III, the king of the Assyrian Empire. And he said to him in 2 Kings 16, verse 8, I am your servant, I am your vassal, just be with me, be with us, and we know we'll be okay. What's revealed of Ahaz is that his heart wasn't trusting in what God was doing or in the work that God would perform. But rather, Ahaz was seeking deliverance and salvation from his own work, by his own hand. And ultimately, as the remainder of our text continues and the prophecy is spoken, what we realize is that when this child comes to a certain age, the Lord will bring judgment upon his people. He will judge the northern tribes of Israel. He will deal with Syria. Assyria will lay them waste, but Assyria will also come to the doorsteps of Judah. 
The alliance that was made with the king of the Assyrian Empire was just an opening door, an opening door for them to bring an attack to the very heart of God's people. And what Ahaz realized is that he couldn't be delivered by his own hand. Instead, he was met with destruction. What Isaiah is telling us is that deliverance comes only from God. Rescue comes only from God, the God who is with us. And what's interesting is you go just a little bit further into Isaiah, in fact, into the next chapter. The story continues to unfold, and the Assyrian invasion is now coming against Judah. They're coming against the people that Ahaz had ruled over. And when you get to chapter 8 and you read, starting in verse, verse 6, or excuse me, verse 8, it says that Assyria will sweep in onto Judah, it will overflow reaching even to their neck, its outspread wings will fill the breadth of your land. It's a picture of them coming almost to the point of being done away with. They barely got their nose above the water. They're just at the point of drowning. But listen to what the people say. Verse 9 in chapter 8, Be broken, you peoples, and be shattered. Give ear, all you far countries. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Strap on your armor and be shattered. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak a word, but it will not stand. Why? For God is with us. What you have in Isaiah 7 followed by Isaiah 8 are two contrasts. A contrast of Ahaz who is trusting in what his own hands can do, what his own work can provide, and the people of Judah who are saying, no, we trust that God is with us. And ultimately, by trusting in him, their enemies are shattered. By trusting in him, their deliverance is secured. And that brings us to the point, the heart of it all. This ancient Christmas story in Isaiah 7 tells us that Christmas is not just a wonderful season of celebration. But it's the question of where we're going to place our ultimate allegiance. Of what we're going to trust in, who we're going to trust in. Because just like Ahaz, we are in a predicament as well. The enemies of sin and Satan and self are coming down upon us. We face destruction and we need deliverance. And the question is, is what will we trust in for deliverance? Who will we look to to rescue us? And the options before us are simple. You can be like King Ahaz and trust in yourself. Lean upon your own works. Rely on your own understanding. And ultimately you'll be met with the judgment and destruction of God. Or, or we can have faith in the one that God sent. God with us. You see, the point of Isaiah 7 is that God delivers us by faith. Faith in His Son, Emmanuel, the one who came to be with us. So as we begin the Advent season, as we come to this Christmas season, let's strip everything else away for a moment. And let's just ask ourselves, where does our faith lie? What are you trusting in today? The only hope to be had, the only rescue to be found, 
The only deliverance that can be secured comes by trusting in Jesus. And if you're not trusting in him today, know this. Just as Ahaz met destruction, just as the northern tribes met destruction, just as uh, the people of Syria met destruction, just as uh, the king of Assyria would ultimately meet his destruction, you'll meet it one day as well. And it will come just as the destruction of all of these came. When you go back in Isaiah 7, what you hear is that the Lord will bring this upon you. The Lord will bring destruction upon all of those who don't have faith in him. But he has given us a way of hope. He has given us an opportunity for rescue. And it comes by trusting in Emmanuel. God with us. By believing in faith. And if we do that, Paul would write in Romans chapter 8, if God be for us, who then can be against us? So where's your faith at today? Where's your faith at as we come to the Christmas season? Is it in what your bank account may say? Is it in the health report that you may have from the doctor? Is it in the intellect that you possess, the job that you hold, the friends that you have, the network that you've created, the skills that you possess? If your hope's in anything else other than Jesus Christ, there's no rescue. But today, today, if you'll trust in Him, there's deliverance to be had. Salvation to be found. Let's pray.